Our final scripture reading um, this evening comes from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. This is a really hard passage to read sitting down. So I'm going to have you stand now for the reading of this final passage. End of the Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen. You may be seated. So the passage we just read may be familiar to some of you. It is the beginning of the end of the great story the Bible is telling. And what we get here in this passage is a panoramic view of this new union that exists between a new heaven and a new earth. If, as some of you I'm sure have, if you were to continue reading, um, this is one vision, by the way, that goes two chapters, you would find that John moves on from this passage to the gates and the walls of this magnificent city. It's an enchanted city almost the New Jerusalem, and then John continues and he walks us into that city, which actually turns out to be a temple. And in the very center of that temple, we find ourselves in a garden, and it is, in fact, the garden remade. And it's remade in such a way that the original garden that we know as Eden from Genesis 2, which was, by the way, always exemplary, that garden from Genesis 2 is now overwhelmed by the beauty and the harvest of this final garden, which as John testifies, all worship and all intimacy and joy is consummated in life. Life capitalized. Life is reclaimed as it was intended. It is life healed, it is life eternal, it is life unhindered, it is life now filled with the glory of God and finally the reign of his people. And as we reflect on prayer this weekend, I just want to make a note that after John sees uh, this great vision, the first thing he does is he falls down in worship, and he worships the wrong person. That's an important note to say. But then he ends the Bible how? How does John end the Bible? He ends the Bible with a prayer. And it's a prayer so simple and so beautiful that we could say that it reflects all the substance of Christian hope. So the last words of Jesus in the Bible are this. He, he tells John as he's sitting there with him, he says, surely I am coming soon. And that's, that's the great promise of Christian hope, that Jesus is coming soon. And do you remember what John prays or says back to him? He says, amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you were to pray that prayer regularly, and I hope that you will, what would you be praying for? If you were to pray that Jesus would hasten the day of his coming, like the Bible tells us to pray regularly, what would you be praying for? Three things I want to point out briefly from our passage um, that we just read. 
The first is this, if you were to pray regularly for Jesus to come quickly, for him to hasten the day of his return, you would be praying for a completely renewed world. Look with me again at verse one, don't miss it. John writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. What is John looking at here? John is seeing the salvation of the entire creation. Important that you hear me say this. It is not the salvation of individual souls being carried away from a horrible place. That is Greek mythology. It is not biblical theology. What John is seeing here is the world that we know even now, the world that we labor in, that's being refined and purged and restored. He is seeing the creation of Genesis 1 reconciled and finally brought back into the presence of God. And in verse 5, I'm sure someone's pointed this out to you before, but you'll just note that God says this, Behold, I am making what? All things new. What does he not say? I am making all new things. There's a big difference in where you place that word. One Christmas when our kids were young, we have four kids. They're here this evening and hope to get to see you guys after this. We were, one Christmas we were putting ornaments on a tree and if you've ever done this with young kids, you know there are always casualties, always casualties every year. Someone drops one of the breakable ornaments. Why we buy breakable ornaments still, I don't know. And one of those things shatters. And on this occasion, as Jade and I were preparing to gather the pieces and to throw the broken pieces away, one of our sons, this was a few years ago, started leaking these big elephant tears. And he said to us, Mom and Dad, you cannot throw that ornament away. Why not? Well, it's, it's too pretty to throw away. Can we fix it? And sadly, fixing that ornament was beyond us, and so it went to ornament heaven, where all great ornaments go, by the way. But his instinct is right. Something beautiful and something of great value, it begs for its beauty and its value to be restored. And if you go back to Genesis 1, you'll find that God, there's a refrain there, God is pronouncing his benediction on creation, on what he's just made, and he says over and over again what? It is good, it is good, it is very good. And the Apostle Paul picks this theme up in Romans 8, and he says that the whole creation has been groaning ever since the fall, groaning, pleading, begging for that God-givenness, that God-goodness to be restored. That's another way of saying that the whole creation is praying even now, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And friends, I know you know this, but if you think, and you do, that there are parts of this world even now that are indescribably beautiful, and if you know goodness in this world even now, the message here is just wait. Just wait. What is good will be better, and the best is always yet to come. The first thing that we pray for when we ask for Jesus to come quickly is we're praying for this whole world, this whole world that we know to be renewed. Second, we are also praying for a renewed people. Verse two, look there with me. John writes, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. She was prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. No doubt you know that moment in a wedding when the season of preparation is over. Thank goodness the season of preparation is over. 
And everyone has taken their place in the sanctuary and the music for the bridal procession has finally begun and the doors are flung open and the congregation stands to see what they got dressed up and traveled so far to see. A bride adorned. Not the guy. The bride adorned. That bride adorned now to be given away to the man who has loved her and committed himself to her forever. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, on that day this bride will be what? She'll be without spot or wrinkle or any kind of blemish. And so on that reading it turns out God the Father has been planning a wedding day for you all this time. And we know two chapters before this from Revelation 19 that that day will be a party. It will be a feast to end all feasts, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And if you've ever been the parents of the bride, you know how expensive a wedding can be. Amen? None? Okay. Why do we spend so much money on weddings? Well, it's because we deem marital union and love worthy of that cost, the cost to be celebrated. And the way the Bible describes it is on this day, that celebration will be the, the celebration of all celebrations, and God himself will host it, and he will spare no expense, and he can afford it, and there's no splitting the ticket. He will pay the cost entirely. One of the best parts of my jobs is, um, is doing weddings. Love them. And as a minister, it's always interesting to see the transformation of the bride. So we get this, we're privileged to get to, to meet with the bride and groom before the wedding and, and do some sort of premarital counseling. And, and almost always when they show up in our office, you know, they, they show up, the bride-to-be and the groom-to-be in their everyday clothes, of course. And it's the only way as a minister you've probably ever known that bride. You've always seen her as the girl next door. Until that moment when the sanctuary doors open, and even after 50 weddings, and I get the best seat in the house, I get teary-eyed every time it happens. Because here is that girl that was once in a t-shirt, and old jeans, and old shoes, and now she is stunning. She is beautiful, she is radiant, she is adorned with eyes only for her husband. And one way to think about what's actually happening in that moment is that the love and the affection that she's had for her groom all along is now turned inside out and she is glowing from the inside out for everyone to see. That will be the church in glory. One pastor makes a point that I love. He says, you know, on that day, will, will we even recognize each other? And the answer, of course, is yes and no. We will recognize one another, but likely we'll say something like this. I never knew that's who you really were and who God was making you to be by his grace. On that day, we'll all be turned inside out with more beauty than we can now imagine because what Jesus has been doing in us that we can't always see all along to adorn us for himself. Friends, we hope for that day. We long for that day. We pray for that day. When we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's two. And then finally, to pray for Jesus to come quickly is to pray both for presence and for absence. Look there with me in verses three through five briefly. 
I want you to imagine here in those verses what God says eternity with him will be like. First, imagine what is present. And we would see this more if we continued reading in this final vision, but what is most strikingly present really at the end of Revelation in the new heaven and the new earth is God himself, the fullness of God himself. Verse three, behold, that means look, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. If you've been in the Bible long, if you've been around the Bible long, you'll know that as the thread, the promise that ties the whole of it together. We call it the covenant of grace. That promise is nothing less than Emmanuel, God with us. Of course, we'll explore that more tomorrow, but here's something for you to think about. The intimacy, the same intimacy that the Father has enjoyed with the Son in the Spirit from all eternity past, that will belong to us for all eternity future. And then notice what's absent in verse four. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And what John is asking us to do is just to try. Can you just try to imagine it? Hard to wrap our heads around it. But in the new heaven and in the new earth, all of your pain and all of your suffering and all of your tears that have been poured out to God as unanswered questions, they will finally receive their response from him. And what will life be like? It will be absent the fear of death. It will be absent cancer. It will be absent betrayal and loss and guilt and regret and shame. It will be absent any internal restlessness and discontent. It will be absent jealousy, relational friction, the disordered love of money. John is asking you to begin to imagine it, and then he's gonna use such strong metaphors as if to say that the experience itself will be better than whatever you're thinking right now. And it's important to note, as the Bible closes, that this will be, really, no kind of ending at all. It is, in fact, the new beginning. Some of you will know this, but this is how C.S. Lewis closes his end of the Narnia series, he, he puts it like this. The things that began to happen after that, that is after the group entered Aslan's land, they were so great and beautiful that I cannot even write of them and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. Then he says this, but for them it was only the beginning of the real story because all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page and now at last, at last, they were beginning chapter one. Chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before. The semester is finally over, you get it, the holidays have begun, the dream has ended, this is the morning. And the picture here is that one day, the scaffolding will come down. You've seen construction before. That scaffolding will come down, the scaffolding that surrounds the love and work of Jesus Christ for you, it will come down, and when that happens, the glory of all God's purposes, of all his work, even in the midst of your suffering, 
will be visible for all. And the semester will be over. And the holidays will begin. And for that, we live. And for that, we hope. And for that, we pray. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Do you believe that? If so, we say amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus.